Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11. And if you're making notes this morning, I've called this message simply and only Jesus. Now, for those of you that are new, we are presently studying the gospel of Luke together as a local church, which the way we do it means we take it line by line. We don't want to miss anything in God's word. We want to study it and enjoy it. And the gospel of Luke is a wonderful book. It's written so that we may have certainty concerning the things of Jesus, so that we may know that our faith that we build our lives upon isn't just written on the back of a napkin somewhere. But it's been proven to be true again and again and again. Just last week, then we saw Jesus speaking to the crowds, giving them a most tangible blessing. The reality that Jesus Christ has come to save us. And through faith in him, we can be blessed by him, which means we're forgiven and redeemed that heaven could be our home. And this week, having addressed the crowd with that, he now addresses just the few. Let's look together at verses 37 through to the end of chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his arms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and yet neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing him. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not teach the burden with what, you do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom the fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation... Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, it is quickly tangible that your tone in this text is different. Oh Lord, would you help me to expound this scripture? Lord, would you help us all to sit at your feet today? Would we enjoy just kneeling before you once again and learning from you? Lord, these are your words designed to give life. I pray they would give life. 
I pray that you may open our eyes to behold the beauties of what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. As we have seen now in the Gospel of Luke, I think on multiple occasions, following Jesus is an adventure of great joy. To know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord is a wonderful thing, and to follow him is a truly great thing. It brings wonderful joy. That's why just a few chapters before, we see the 72 that were sent out returning, and we see them returning to Jesus with great joy. They're ecstatic about what is taking place because they now know to follow Jesus involves a pathway of prayer and proclamation. It involves telling people about Jesus and having the joy of watching them put their faith in Jesus. Whenever we go, then we go with power. We are, as we've just sang, we are never alone. We never just go by ourselves, but the Lord is with us each and every step of the way. And throughout it all, we have the profound joy of knowing that our names are written in the book of heaven. When we spend time with the Lord, when we pray, we have the joy of knowing I can only do this because you've saved me by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's incredible that we're forgiven by his abounding grace. We're justified by his abounding grace. We are sure that heaven is our home by his abounding grace. There is great joy in knowing and following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. However, and yet as Christians, there are two things that can so easily and readily sap us of this joy. Like heat on a hot day as you're walking without a drink, you can so easily find yourself heavily laden and burdened, joyless, even as a Christian. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason, the first thing that so openly wants to snatch our joy is Satan, as we saw just a few weeks ago. As Graham Cole tells us, so many Christians in the West live as though the story of creation involved in the main just two characters, just God and ourselves. It's so true, as we saw a few weeks ago, so many Christians, particularly in Australia, Just think it's like me and Jesus, and that's where the story ends, when in reality, it is you and Jesus and one who has a perfect plan for your life. He wants to distract you, wants to pull you away. Hey, come and check out over here. Wants you to flirt with sin, wants you to flirt with the world, wants you to get distracted with 101 other things. Why? Because he knows that will sap you, even as a Christian, of joy. Listen, Satan can never steal you away from God's grasp. He can never rob you of your salvation. Satan is not that powerful. God tells us himself, Jesus tells us himself, all that the Father has given to me, I will lose none. That's a fact. But he can make your Christian life very miserable. He can deceive you. He can distract you. He can pull you away. Will you still get to heaven? Uh Uh-huh. Will you have had a sad life? Uh Uh-huh. Satan wants to kill and rob and destroy your joy. He wants to pull you away from it. And the second thing that so easily and readily pulls us away from the joy of following Jesus is not actually a person. It's a heresy. And it's the heresy of legalism. Which in a word is self-atonement. C.J. Mahaney, the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches, said it this way. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness 
from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Isn't that brilliant? Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Listen, legalism is self-atonement. It is thinking that through my behavior, through what I do, through my works, I will be accepted by God, forgiven by God, and justified by God. That's what legalism is. It's saying the cross isn't enough, it's me. (laughs) It's my works. It's what I do. It is self-atonement. And it is that, that second part of the puzzle that so quickly seeks to draw us away from joy in Jesus that Jesus is addressing right here with the Pharisees and scribes. The issue at stake here is legalism. So I have three points this morning. Number one, legalism illustrated. Number two, legalism discerned. And then number three, legalism overcome. But I really come to this message with really just one hope. And that is the hope that we would see that these warnings against legalism aren't just for them. But they're for us as well. This isn't here just so we can look at the Pharisees and the scribes and go, oh dear me, terrible. They're here so that we can learn from it. And realize maybe there's more of a legalist in my heart than I thought. These warnings aren't just for them. They're for us as well. Three points then and here's the first. Legalism illustrated. Legalism as I said a few moments ago is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God. Justification before God and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Legalism is self-atonement. And in headlines, so that we're clear, these Pharisees and these scribes are riddled with it. They are rank legalists. And this becomes immediately apparent when Jesus deliberately yet somewhat mischievously fails to wash his hands. So look with me at verses 37 and 38. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. So good so far. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Astonished? Another word would be horrified. What is going on? You see, hand washing to the Pharisees, to say the least, was vitally important to the Pharisees. And that's not because they were concerned about getting COVID, okay? It's because they're concerned about keeping the rules, keeping the laws. And they had hundreds of them. You see, Pharisees, by very nature, were set-apart ones. That's what Pharisee even means, set-apart ones. They were the holy men of the day. They prided themselves on personal piety, on holy living. To even actually become a Pharisee, you had a one-year probationary period. So it'd be like going on starting point for a whole year. And then what they used to do is they would look at all the laws of the Bible and also the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a man-made law. It was written by the scribes and the Pharisees. There's big law around the law of God. The extra law was 6,000 laws. And then what they did is they would study you for a year to make sure you are doing every last one of them. And if you pass, you can become a Pharisee. 
They were incredible law keepers. And so they are astonished. They are horrified in this moment when they see, ah, Jesus has not washed his hand. Why? Well, because it talks about washing hands in the Mishnah. Hands can be dirty things. doesn't say that in the Bible, but it says that in their man-made laws. And they've decided then if you don't wash your hands, ooh, it's unclean. It lacks holiness. Why are you not keeping these laws? Why are you not keeping these rules? Well, listen, this omission from Jesus not washing his hands was totally calculated on his part. This is an all-out affront on the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment. This is deliberate. It is mischievous. It is intense. He is going after them. And he is going after them in particular for their legalism. At a very fundamental level, these Pharisees believed, if we just do everything right, we keep all the laws, God will accept me. He will forgive me. Heaven will be my home through my ability to keep my rules. That's what legalism is. So Jesus goes out on an all-out on front after this legalism. Because he knows the way it is binding them, and he knows, sadly, they are peddling this reality to others as well. They are pulling people away from any need for Jesus. Just keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules. You'll be justified, you'll be forgiven, you'll be accepted. And Jesus all the time is helping them see, no, it's not true. You see, these men, these Pharisees, first and foremost, they were hypocrites. And Jesus all out calls them that in verses 39 to 43. He tells them, listen, you tithe to the nth, but you have no regard for the poor. You tithe to the nth. You know, literally, they are growing plants and herbs. And every tenth leaf, how many have we got here? Every tenth, that's the Lord's. Every tenth, that's the Lord's. They tithe, one in ten, everything. Everything they have. Every blade of grass, ten grass, everything. When it comes to keeping the rules, they got to keep the rules. they got to keep the rules. This is what makes me acceptable before God. But looking after the poor? Hmm, not a direct law about that. So get out of my house, thanks. I don't want anything to do with you. Can you, can, can you just leave me, please? So walking past beggars? No problem. We don't want anything to do with them. Oh, but I've got to look after my herbs and make sure every tenth is the Lord's. He tells them, listen, you are hypocrites. In Matthew 15, verse 18, he talks about the Pharisees and he says, Though these people honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. And he was right. Though these Pharisees honor him with their lips, oh, we're just all about God, we're all for him. In reality, their hearts are far from the Lord. When it comes to looking after the poor, they're not interested. When it comes to justice, they're not interested. And part of the way that was expressed is they loved the worship of others. So if they were in Sovereign Grace Church, they would want chairs here. So you can see them. So you can see them and admire them. Look at them, they're Pharisees. They keep all the laws. They do everything right. They love to go into the marketplace and have people pay them homage. Oh, hello, Pharisee. Hello, Rabbi. They love that. They want all the attention they can get. And they loved whenever they went round for a meal. Oh, can I sit at the head of the table, please? Oh, yes, Rabbi, yes. They would love the attention. They were self-righteous men who thought they were doing a darn good job of keeping the laws. And so they wanted everybody to worship them as a result. They are hypocrites. And they are also deceivers of 
others, which Jesus tells them about in verses 44 and 52. Verse 44, addressing the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. I mean, that is like a real Jewish insult. It can be harder for us to understand, but to them it's like, ah! I mean, that's just a really bad thing to say. Because in Jewish tradition, if you touched a tomb or a gravesite, you were, you were unclean. You were defiled. So you couldn't spend time with your family or go into the temple because you're unclean. So what did they do? They always painted their graves white. So that you would come across one and go, oh, whoa, whoa, walk around. And what he's saying is you are like graves that are unmarked. People stand on them and they become defiled by who? By you. Because they spend time with you and you teach them all these lies. You teach them all this legalism. They get drawn away from the kingdom of God because of you. You deceive people. And he says virtually the same thing then to the scribes in verse 52. He says, woe to you lawyers. Now for all of you that are lawyers, don't panic. It's actually scribes. But if you are a lawyer, well, and it addresses you, then, well, it addresses you. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Listen, what he's saying here is these scribes, these men that have given their whole lives to studying the Bible, to studying the prophets of old, you should have known better. How did you not see the coming of the king? All the prophets of old that all whispered my name, that all pointed to me, you should have known better, but instead you didn't. You should have seen God's great plan of salvation. You should have seen that I am him. But instead, even though I've arrived, you're still killing the prophets. You're still distorting the truth. And you're still pulling people away. Even now, you're distorting it. In Matthew 23, verse 13, he's even stronger with them. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. (laughs) For all those that just think of Jesus as this lovely, nice guy. He just gives us a warm hug. Not always. Sometimes he calls you a hypocrite. He then continues, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. It's such a strong statement, but his point is clear. Listen, you are such hypocrites and woe to you. Because you are distorting the truth. You're deceiving people away from the truth. You should know better. And instead then of bringing people into the kingdom of God, you're slamming it shut in your in their face, pulling people away from me. Why? Because they're legalists. They feel no need for Jesus. We can do it all ourselves. Keep the rules. Obey the commands. Heaven will be your home. My friends, the thing that we learn through this text, I think so much as anything, is that legalism is a perilous and dangerous thing. Legalism will distort us away from the gospel. We won't feel any need for the gospel. Because quite frankly, we'll think we're good enough just by ourselves. Through our behavior, through our rule keeping. No need for a savior. It's legalism. And likewise, legalism robs us of our joy. It robs us of our joy, even as Christians. It can seep into our hearts and rob us of the joy that it is to enjoy the gospel of grace. I would love to tell you that this only happened 2,000 years ago. That it only happened when you interacted with a Pharisee or a scribe. But that's not true. 
Sadly, legalism is still alive and well today. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, the practical importance of justification by grace alone cannot be exaggerated. But the glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be right related to him in spite of their sin. Listen. But our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into his work of grace. That's brilliant. I submit to you as Christians, this is a daily temptation and tendency. It is the daily temptation and tendency to seek to smuggle in character into a salvation that is actually all of grace. Still happens today. Still prevalent today. So that brings me to point two, legalism discerned. If the biggest mistake we can make and the greatest temptation we have is to try and smuggle character into our salvation, which is all of grace, then how do we discern what legalism might look like today? Because no one's freaking out if we go to somebody's house and don't wash our hands. How do we discern legalism today? How do we discern legalism or the potential of legalism in our lives? How do we discern even the temptation towards it? And how do we discern if in reality that temptation towards legalism is actually become a reality in our lives? How do we spot it? How do we know if we're doing it? Well, I think there's two things in particular that legalism tends to look like. And I think the way we guard ourselves away from legalism in part is by knowing our enemy and knowing what we're dealing with. Two things that legalism looks like. The first is this. Legalism, more often than not, looks like being more aware of and reliant upon our godly practices than we are the cross. We say that again. Legalism, more often than not, looks like us being more aware of and reliant upon our godly practices than we are the cross. Now, as I explain this point, I am aware that there is definitely high risk of being misunderstood on this point. (laughs) So I want to be clear. I am in no way seeking to minimize or critique godly practices. (laughs) I want you as a church to read your Bible. I want us to pray. I want us to tithe. I want us to come to church. I want us to do fellowship with one another. I want us to serve. They are all wonderful, important, godly practices. But here's what I am against. As your pastor, I am profoundly against thinking that in any way those things earn our salvation or merit our salvation. Because they don't. And the moment we think those things are earning my acceptance before God and meriting my acceptance before God is the moment legalism has stepped into your life. Because they don't. See, the best illustration I know of on this is C.J. Mahaney's um, illustration of Stuart, the legalistic plate spinner and living the cross-centered life. It's an illustration I have used before on this very platform, but it is an illustration I cannot improve upon. And so for all those that are newer, I want to describe this legalistic plate spinner for us because it's so vivid. And if you have heard it before, don't assume that you can now not see yourself. We need to regularly revisit. 
See, Stuart, the plate spinner, here's what happened to him. Stuart got saved about a year ago. And when he became a Christian, he was ecstatic. I mean, he was the happiest person in the room. He's singing the loudest. He's just amazed. And he's amazed because I'm saved by grace alone. I just like put my faith in him. And he forgave me and redeemed me. And heaven's my home. I can't believe it. He is ecstatic. Stuart is thrilled to be a Christian. And so a year ago, some faithful brothers and sisters came alongside Stuart and started to disciple him and help him in his newfound faith. And so the first one comes to Stuart and says, Stuart, it's amazing you've become a Christian. Have you got a Bible? And Stuart's like, I haven't even got a Bible. He's like, let me buy you a Bible. I'm going to take you over to the bookshop. Here's a Bible. And here's a Bible. And here's a one-year reading plan. It's important to spend time in God's Word, Stuart. And so he starts reading his Bible on a one-year plan. And at that point, on goes Stuart's first plate. He wants to show everybody his plate. Look at it. Look at it. I've got a Bible. Reading it through in a year. <laughs> yeah. Showing everybody his plate. He's reading the Bible plate. And then somebody like a month later says, Oh, Stuart, it's amazing you're reading your Bible and you're doing it through a year. But be careful. It's good to, good to get a good overview. But it's important to memorize the Bible and meditate on God's word. Because you need to hide it in your heart. And also, you need to meditate on the Bible. You don't just want to read it like a speedboat. You want to meditate. The Bible is clear that blessed is the man who meditates on the Lord day and night. So Stuart's like, oh, okay. So on go two more plates. And he starts spinning three plates. I've got my read the Bible in a year. Memorization. Meditation. And then somebody says, oh, Stuart, your Bible reading has gone so well. But what about your prayer? Are you praying? Are you spending time praying to the Lord? And on goes another plate. And then evangelism goes on. Then being a part of a gospel community goes on. And then putting sin to death goes on. And giving goes on. And serving goes on. And then giving your life away to disciple others and being discipled by them. And being a part of a local church. And singing, praising God wherever you can. And then there's fasting and all the other spiritual disciplines. They're all good things, right? Everything I've just said is a good thing. And yet what you've noticed with Stuart is a year on, he's the unhappiest person in the room. And you wonder, how has this happened? He's doing everything right. He's doing all these things. They're such good things. Where is his joy gone? I, I can't understand where his joy has actually gone. I'll tell you where his joy's gone. Stuart's become a legalist. Here's why. He's failed to recognize that all these plates are ways of experiencing God's great salvation. And has started to think that they're ways of earning God's great salvation. And the more he spins his plates, then the more unhappy he becomes. Because he's seeking to now smuggle in works to a salvation that is all of grace. He's thinking that if I've got to keep these plates in the air, otherwise he won't accept me. I've got to keep these plates up, otherwise he won't forgive me. Oh, my prayer, it's lacking. I've got to keep it going, otherwise heaven won't be my home. He started to think that all these things are ways of earning God's great salvation. And what is happening to Stuart, and what happens actually to every legalist that ever exists, is with every crashing plate is the distinct sound of condemnation in his life. 
Because he starts to feel, I suck at Christianity. I'm terrible at it. I can't even read my Bible properly. I'm like 87 chapters behind. I haven't told people about Jesus for like four weeks. I missed church for a week. And when I was playing football, it was a good game. But I missed it for a week. And God probably hates me for that. He started to think that all these ways are earning God's salvation and failed to recognize Stuart. They were never about that. He's become a legalist. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? You start realizing, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you start spinning plates. And they are in these ways of wonderful ways of experiencing this great salvation, experiencing grace, knowing the Lord and growing in your faith. We should do them, but we should never do them thinking that they're adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ to make me acceptable to God. Because they're not. They are nothing to do with it. Because Jesus has paid it all. The only way you are justified before God and forgiven by God and accepted under God is because Jesus Christ died in your place. It is finished and it is finished for you. There is nothing else to add. It's not like he said, I'm going to die in your place. But if you wouldn't mind praying now and again, that would just make up the gap. No, he's saying it is finished. Jesus has paid it all in full. Done. None of these plates are ways of earning this great salvation. They're just ways of experiencing it. And we must understand the difference. And my friends, maybe some of you here today are aware that maybe you relate to Stuart more than you'd hoped. Well, I have some counsel for you from Martin Luther. He says, the only contribution we make to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. That beautiful. Just be released by that in this moment. The only thing you bring to your justification is your sin. Galatians 2 verse 15, Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He takes it very, very seriously and makes it very, very clear. You are saved by grace alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That is your salvation. It's not through works. It's through his finished work in your place and what he has done. So if this relates to you, I, I can give you no better counsel than what Mr. D. Dixon has to say. He says, for I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad and cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both. And I have instead betaken myself to the Lord Jesus. And in him, I have a sweet peace. Oh, my friends, how true that is. If you think your plates are earning salvation, you could just go ahead and let them crash now. And you will still find he's singing over you and has forgiven you and has justified you. And has accepted you. Because your salvation was never about your plates. It was about what Jesus Christ has done in your place instead. Isn't that good news? Whereas legalism, more often than not, looks like us being more aware of and reliant upon our godly practices 
than we are the cross. And when we become aware of that, oh my, we need to pause and understand nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And then there's a close cousin to that illustration of legalism. There's another side of the legalism coin that also I think goes after us. And it's this, number two, that legalism, more often than not, looks like us living more aware of and affected by past sins than we are the finished work of Jesus. Legalism, more often than not, looks like us living more aware of and affected by past sins than we are the finished work of Jesus. Once again, CJ in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, illustrates this through a comic strip called Kathy. There is a set of four pictures from Kathy, and there are thought bubbles coming out of her mind. And this is what she says in the first scene. Things I should have done at work, and things I should have said to Irvin. In the second scene, things I promised myself that I'd never do again, that I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that I could have avoided. Then the third scene, things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closet, my diet, and millions of people in need whom I have never met. And then the fourth scene. For even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. You know, I'm sure in our lives, we've all met people like that at different times. Even when they're not going anywhere, it's like they have 300 pounds of luggage with them. Because they're just so condemned. They constantly feel like they're failing. And really... They fail to understand God's forgiveness to them. So they just condemn. See, my experience is when you encounter people like this, there are two things that quickly become apparent about them. Firstly, what you tend to find with this type of individual is they often lack joy, like ongoingly. They just never seem to get happy. They consistently lack, lack joy. And the second thing I've noticed about these type of people is they often seem to be seeking to work harder and harder and harder and harder to get right with God. So they're profoundly sad and unhappy, but they are trying harder and harder in their lives to do something that's going to make them acceptable before God and forgiven by God and justified by God. See, it is a subtle form of legalism, but I want to assure you, it is legalism nonetheless. Because this individual, overwhelmed by condemnation, instead of realizing Jesus has paid it all, instead is trying to self-atone. They put themselves on the naughty step, and then they try and get off it through their works again and again and again. But they never feel like their works are coming up to the goods. That's legalism. That's legalism in the fall. Rather than understanding, I can't justify myself before the Lord. But neither do I need to. Because Jesus has paid it all for me. 
Romans 4, verses 7 to 8, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Listen, is that not good news for us this morning? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman whose countless sins before the Lord are not counted anymore by him. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. If you are tempted to go ahead and get on that naughty step, I can tell you in the name of Jesus, you may as well get off. Because he's already paid it all. He has done it for you. Listen, you will never be more saved than you were the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the Lord for the first time. You will never be more saved than that. And whoever you are, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is no one ever in the entirety of world history that has ever been more saved than you are today. (laughs) Because your salvation isn't a process. It is a position. It's not like something we're working on. It's a declaration. The gavel of the judge comes down. Boom. Forgiven. Justified. Accepted. It is done. It is finished. That's why Paul tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because there's nothing left to pay. To think that I have got to earn or do something to bridge the gap is so offensive before God in honesty. Because what we're actually saying to him is, you know the cross, I'm grateful for it, thank you, but it was not enough. You need me to do something as well, right? So if I'll just try, I'll try and read the Bible through in a year, and then will you accept me then? Or maybe if I pray, like all the time. No. The cross was enough. For all your sin, past, present, and future. The cross was enough. Jesus has paid it all. Now, legalism is such a tendency and temptation for us all, I think. So very quickly, just to close by way of conclusion, point three, legalism overcome. How do we put this to death? How do we avoid this? How do we ensure that this does not become a feature in our lives? Listen, it's not complicated, but it is profound in its simplicity. We hold fast to the cross and we never move on. That's what you've got to do. Hold fast to Christ and Him crucified. Hold fast to the old rugged cross. Hold fast to surveying the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and never move on from that scene. Because that's where He did it all for you. And there's nothing else now to do. Sinclair Ferguson says the reason why we so often lack assurance of His grace It's because we so often fail to focus on the spot where he has revealed it. Oh, how true. Sovereign Grace, if you want to guard against legalism in your life, then never move on from the hill called Golgotha. Never move on from the place where Christ died for your sins to make you forgiven and redeemed and justified and accepted. Never move on. That's why sitting at the feet of Jesus is so important. And that's why spending time in his word is so important. Because whether you be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, every page whispers his name. This whole book is ultimately all about Jesus.
Some of it points forward to Jesus. Some of it points right at him. Some of it points back to him. Some of it points on to his second coming. But it's so important we spend time in it because when we don't, do you know what happens? Oh, we quickly become legalists. But when we wash ourselves with the word, we're reminded, it's not about me, it's all about him. That's why likewise, prayer is so important as Brendan was preaching so well a few weeks ago. When we pray, our Father, I mean, just just stop right there. How is that possible? (laughs) Well, it's not possible because of your Bible reading that morning. He doesn't say, our, I hope you'll be my Father, maybe if I do enough. You just say, our Father. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. And Lord, because of what Jesus has done, I've now been adopted into your family. And adoptions don't change. They never change. So I'm always your son. Lord, I thank you. So I come not on the premise of all the things I'm doing. In fact, I'm not even very good at a lot of those things. But I come on the premise of what your son has done for me. Lord, you're my father. That's why prayer is so important. And praying theologically affirmed in that way. Likewise, it's why singing is so important. Allowing God's word to dwell in us richly. And not primarily songs about us, but primarily about Jesus. What he's done. Songs have the innate ability to get stuck in our head. It's so important that we get good words stuck in our head. Gospel word. If we are wise, we will hold fast to the cross and never move on. I'm going to give the last words then to C.H. Spurgeon. This is brilliant. He says, one might better try to sail the Atlantic in a paper boat than get to heaven by good works. (laughs) My friends, he's right. There is no getting into heaven through good works. There's only one way. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And once you've done that, always give your life to stopping and staring. And never move on. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way you address us from your word. And I thank you for the way you care for our hearts. You are a good shepherd to us. Lord, I thank you that you know the way this works and you know what can so easily rob us of joy. And so, Lord, I pray as a congregation that we would guard our hearts from legalism. That we would understand that nothing in our hands do we bring simply to the cross do we cling. That we would not be seeking to self-atone. Because we would understand that you have paid it all for us. You have atoned for us. There's nothing left to do. Lord, I pray that nothing then would rob us of that joy in you. Would we be the recipients of this truth? And would we live our lives then amazed by this scandalous grace? Amazed that you would save us. Would we leave the room today just shaking our heads in disbelief that you've done it all? And would we live in the good of that joy? And would all glory go to you? In Jesus' name, amen.